It is wonderful to worship here together in Stowe with my spiritual family. Two weeks ago, I had the fun privilege of getting to worship with our family in Portugal. That is our missionaries we have, the Bags and the Zigglers. So I got to go visit them. Why half of us aren't looking at the camera, I don't know. We'll just say it's cultural. It's a Portuguese thing. You don't look at the camera. That's how everybody does it there. But I really do want you to pray for them as God is moving. But it was hard, actually, going over to visit them. It took months to make it happen, just schedule-wise, and I kept having to apologize. Sorry, man, I can't make it. I'm trying to get over there soon. When I finally do get to schedule to go there, man, I got my plane tickets. I drive up to Cleveland, go through security and all of that. And I was a little nervous going up because I had a kind of hour and 40-minute layover in Newark. If you flew in and out of Newark, that's pretty tight. And so my two-hour layover got way more difficult when my flight was six hours late. Like, ah. But luckily, the, you know, the ladies at the desk, well, hey, I'm, we can get you there. I'll just fly you to Cambodia, off to Hong Kong, up to Frankfurt, down to Tanzania, and then you'll get to Lisbon. I was like, no thanks. And so I had to just basically cancel the trip and rescheduled, I drove back home, my kids were like, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't know, involves Cambodia, I'm, I'm back home tonight. Just is what it is. So I had to tell the missionary, sorry, I, had to, I can't come, but I thought I had to cancel my travel plans. Why am I telling you this? And you're like, I don't know. This is, I didn't need to know that. Wow, shocker, planes get delayed, alert the presses. It isn't that big of news, but the reason I tell you is the next chapter of this book is all about Paul changing his travel plans back to Corinth, which is a little bit weird. I mean, sometimes when I go to read a passage, maybe you're like me, I read God's word and I'm like, okay, that didn't help at all, (laughs) right? Sometimes doesn't God's word just seem totally irrelevant and confusing? I don't know if I'm allowed to say that as a pastor during a sermon, but I feel that sometimes. You ever just think, what does this have to do with my life? We're looking at Paul's changing of his travel plans, but I promise you, his word is living and active. And the more I began to meditate on it, the more God really began to speak to me through it. And that's my hope for you, that even though it can be confusing at times, you hear God speak to you. And I surely hope that happens this morning as we look at Paul going back and forth of his changing of his travel plans. So we're going to dive in to the scripture. We're in 2 Corinthians. We're picking up in verse 12 of the first chapter. So go ahead and follow along as I read. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. We are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. So we're going to look at kind of a whole chapter, so we're going to split it up a little bit. And this is kind of after Pastor Rick kind of did a great job kicking us off, Paul now dives into the heart of his letter. That first line is essentially Paul's thesis through the whole letter. 
I operated towards you in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. So this is Paul just affirming kind of his appeal to them and him telling his motive to them. And he's going to spend more than half of the book defending his ministry and defending his heart for them. Why? Why is he defending his motive? Because somebody is questioning and challenging his motive. Much of Paul's ministry, he would travel around and he would plant churches. And then after he would leave the town, people would come in behind him and start to attack Paul and his ministry. So that's a big part of the the book. Paul defending his ministry and heart to them. So a lot of this, Paul is kind of on trial with the Corinthians. Do we trust Paul? And here we are. He's been accused. This is essentially Paul entering his plea. Paul unequivocally enters a not guilty. I operated you with a purity of heart, with sincerity and holiness. And that is it. That is his plea. But that is now getting questioned. He's being accused. And so what are the grounds of his accusation? And that's where we kind of get into his travel plans. And that's where Paul continues in verse 15. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Did I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? See, that was Paul's plan. He even says it in the end of 1 Corinthians, and he had to change and abandon these plans. So just a little bit of context to follow the flow. Kind of Paul plants this church in Corinth, and after he leaves, he's in Ephesus. He gets word that it's going bad. It is a dumpster fire in Corinth. So he makes an emergency visit and comes back like, whoa, what is going on? And then these people opposing him, challenging him, and it blows up. It is volatile. It gets explosive. It's so bad that even on this emergency visit, Paul says, okay, I'm going to bow out. He leaves, cuts that visit short. And instead of coming back like he said, he writes a firm letter to his opposition and to the church rebuking them. And that's where the accusations come. With these changing of plans, the opposition comes in, oh, he's, he's a hypocrite. He says, oh, absolutely, in no way, yes and no at the same time. You can't trust Paul. He vacillates, right? Paul is wishy-washy. He has no spine. He, they're questioning his character, and they're questioning his care for them. So they say, it's like when a politician, right? When a politician changes his stance a couple of times, what does everybody do? They look at him and say, oh, that guy's a flip-flopper. You can't trust him. He talks out of both sides of his mouth. And that's where, again, that's, that question is basically rhetorical because that's what the opposition was accusing him of. And see, Paul, this is important. He doesn't debate the facts, right? He changed his plans. There's no denying that. We're just talking about this as staff guys. This is so true of the wounds and trauma in your life. I can't change the facts of what happened, but I can control how I interpret those facts, right? I can't change the fact that, oh, my parents got divorced, but I can control, do I interpret that? Oh, that must mean my parents don't love me enough. You see the difference? 
See, Paul doesn't debate the facts. He changed his plans. A lot of this, Paul being on trial, you kind of see this courtroom vocabulary. And on trial, what do you got to do? What do you got to establish? Motive. What are they questioning for Paul? Not just that he changed his plans, went back on his word. They're saying he doesn't really love you. He just makes plans according to the flesh. And so that is what Paul begins to fight for. Not to change the facts, but to change, understand they know his heart towards them. That is what happened. Yes, I had to delay my plans to Portugal, but that doesn't mean it's because I didn't care for them. And that's what Paul fights for. So he says, look, I had a purity of heart towards you in godliness. And they're questioning him. And then now kind of Paul takes the stand and makes his defense and presents his heart to them. So this is a little bit longer, but let's kind of finish this out through the chapter and into chapter 2. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has, put, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause pain to you, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So they're questioning Paul. He doesn't really care about you. And he's saying, look, I know this didn't go the way you expected. I know you're disappointed. But I promise you, my heart towards you is pure. I love you all the ways that I operated with you, with up, with, with Above reproach character is out of love for you. That is his proclamation, and that is what he testifies to as people are accusing him and questioning his character. As we look at this year theme of being on mission, I think we can learn so much watching Paul be on mission. How do we go about sharing the love of Christ? I think there's so much we can learn. I want to look at four things. First being, as we go on mission, like Paul, do we have the utmost character? Right? Paul said it. Look, my conscience is clear. I am not a hypocrite. I'm not saying yes and no at the same time. I know I have no agenda towards you other than God's glory and your good. He stands by, and even that, you know, kind of hear more of that courtroom vocab of like, I call God as my witness. Look at this 
from one commentary. I think this is good. Today we need men and women, both professional and lay ministers, who are people of resolute integrity, who can appeal to their God, his gospel, and their patterns of life in the same breath with quiet confidence. We need ministers who can live transparently. Is that true of our lives? Where I can be transparent and say, as God is my witness, I acted in holiness and godly sincerity. Do we have integrity or are we saying yes and no out of both sides of our mouth? Are we one way at church and a whole different way at work? One way at home around these friends and a whole different way around our church friends? Are we truly wishy-washy and just say whatever to be people-pleasers like they were accusing Paul? Or are we, like Paul, can we stand with a clean conscience? And I've heard it this way, and it always helps me. Like, we have the space to be faulty, just not false. Right? I am a faulty husband. I'm a faulty dad. But I don't want to... I want to get to the place where I can say, I'm not false. I wasn't this hypocrite with all these other agendas in my life. So Paul had integrity. He had character. But also, a big part of his character, secondly, I'm amazed by Paul's humility. Remember, think about the situation. Think of who we're talking about. This is Paul, the guy that wrote the Bible. That's a good resume. It is the all-time bestseller. Did you know this? That, you know, when they put the bestsellers list, the Bible would be the top every single year, but it just doesn't make sense to put it. Like, Paul wrote the Bible, a lot of it. And then he finds out people are questioning him. The apostle Paul, who penned the scriptures, the church he planted, and when it gets intense, what does Paul do? He backs down. What's the theme? Strength through weakness. Paul could have just incinerated these guys and be like, look, I wrote the Bible. If I wrote the Bible, I'd say that all the time. I'll take a number one chicken and I wrote the Bible. Paul doesn't puff up like a big apostle and put them in their place. He says it so clearly. Look, we don't lord it over your faith. We work with you for your joy. And for him, it had nothing to do with his reputation. He didn't care that it's going to question his reputation. He just wanted them to repent. And so he was not about saving face. How much of my ministry, how much of our ministry is about how we look? Paul doesn't care at all about the accusations that he's going to get. His only agenda is for their good. Do we want people to experience willing submission or do we want to just subjugate them and put them in their place? Even think of how we raise our kids? Do we think of what's best for them? Or am I worried about me feeling respected, how I'm going to look to other parents, and now I'm coming down harder on you than I need to? Paul was not worried about reputation. And you know what? In this case where he was getting, it seemed like it was public getting screamed out, he says, okay, I'll bow out. He doesn't cause a scene, doesn't lord it over them, because his agenda is what is for their best and their repentance. Third, I think one of a great example is his love for the church. Again, did you catch the vocabulary? He said he was in anguish for them. Like it said, remember we talked about him writing a letter. 
You know what that letter is known as? It's known as the tearful letter. Because he says that. As he hears about Corinth and how they're possibly going astray, he is literally just weeping and sobbing for them as he writes this letter. Paul, at one point, in a desire to see the Jews come to faith, his people says, I would give up my own salvation if I could, if that meant them coming to know Jesus. Is that how we are? For the people I work with, for my family members that don't know him, do I weep for them? Is my heart broken for them? As we go on mission, aware, prayer, care, Care is not just a checkbox. Okay, I mowed your lawn. Now you ready to accept Jesus? I was meeting with somebody and was walking them through that. Of course, we have Chick-fil-A where all good discipleship happens. And we're talking through this. How do I go on mission? So we just walk through aware, prayer, care. And I did have to stop. That means you have to genuinely care about them. Not do a care thing so I can put a ping pong ball out in the atrium. Like, Do you, like Paul, Weep for those that you are trying to minister to. And if you don't care that way, go back to prayer and just pray that God would break your heart for your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, so that like Paul, you would weep for them to walk with Jesus. The last thing I want to kind of point out, and we're going to look at this from a couple angles, but looking at Paul's example, he was spirit-led. Part of the reason I get there is he changed course. Right? I mean, this is, again, this is the Apostle Paul, but he changes his plans. As I go on mission, am I stubbornly committed to doing this the way I want to? Or am I spirit-led in allowing God to steer me? Right? We make our plans, but is God allowed to guide your steps? You know, we can have our heart in the right place. And how many times does our prayer life look like this? All right, God. I got the plan. I got the career. Here's the plan. Here's the people I'm going to reach. I'm going to need you to sign off on that. In Jesus' name, I'm going to need to go ahead and put your John Hancock on my, on my plans here. Part of you laughing because we know it's true, right? How many times? All right, God, I was, I'm sorry, God, maybe I wasn't clear. I thought I was clear. Here's the plan. Sign off on it on, in Jesus' name. But Paul probably more confident than I in making plans in church planning was willing to say, okay, God, maybe you want me to go a different direction. Now, we don't want to be wishy-washy and stand for nothing, a regular old Aaron Burr. You see Hamilton? That was good, right? You don't stand for anything. So, yeah, don't just change course because you don't have spine. Don't just be a people pleaser and bend every time somebody doesn't like you. So nobody's talking about that. But are we open to God steering us and being spirit-led? And I think Paul gives a great example of that. So that's one thing I want to look at in this. But it does trouble me a little bit. Again, Paul's thesis that he defends his ministry. Like, this is what God gave us in his word. Over half of one of the biggest books in the New Testament is Paul defending his ministry. It's kind of troubling to me. Like, that's not what I'm concerned about. If you were asking me to write the Bible, I'd say, well, tell me about Paul's travel plans. That's what we need to hear about for a chapter. 
Like, we don't have that much. So that's where God began to move in my heart a little bit, because yes, that is the context. But as you begin to study it, there's a lot more going on here. This is a lot more than Paul just defending his ministry. Remember, we said he's, he's humble. He's defending his ministry, but he's not defensive. It's not about Paul fighting for his name. But there's something Paul knew. Just so much deeper than just how it reflects on his ministry and thinking about his reasoning for defending his ministry. This was one of the verses we've covered already. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is, it is always yes. What does he root his ministry in? What does Paul connect his faithfulness to? God's faithfulness. Paul was convinced, I operated with you the way God would operate with you, and I laid the foundation of Jesus. And he says, look, if you question my word, our word, I know you're ultimately going to question his word. If you question, am I faithful as I've given Christ to you, you will question the faithfulness of God. Paul ultimately knew it just wasn't Paul on trial. He ultimately knew that this is God on trial. And if he, if they reject a true apostle of Christ, they will ultimately reject Christ. And so listen, he fights for his ministry because he knows it's ultimately God's ministry. And so Paul, with the church, says, I know how this went down. How I operated to you was difficult, unexpected, and disappointing. But I want you to know through that difficulty that I still love you. Imagine if that clicked in our minds with God. Look, I know there are things in your life God says to you, as Paul says to the church, that that are hard to understand. But I want to fight. So you know I still love you. I can't change the truth of what's happened to you. But I can plead with you to interpret that in a way where you still know God loves you and is for you. Right? Things. I talked about I didn't come in human wisdom. Much of what happens is going to be beyond our wisdom. There are things in your life, in my life, that, I can't, that aren't going to make sense. It did not make sense to them. But how do you interpret that becomes huge. Has your family gone exactly the way you expected it to? Has your career gone exactly the way you wanted it to with no disappointments? Has your health gone perfectly the way you hoped for? Or has there been disappointments and confusion along the way? If there is something in your life that just doesn't make sense to you and has been difficult for you, will you raise your hand? I'll wait till everybody's goes up. That's hovering around 100%. But then what do you do with that? How do you interpret God whenever things don't make sense? And Paul begins to fight for their heart and their understanding of his heart for them as God fights for your heart. I mean, again, that's where he, I mean, he is in anguish. God knows it's still hard for you to believe his abundant love for you. I want you to think through something, and this was part of Paul's reasoning. 
It's like, look, I know that was hard for you, and you didn't get what you expected. But here's what Paul told him. It was to spare you that I refrained from that. Has that ever crossed your mind? That that thing that you wanted so desperately that didn't go the way you wanted it to, that the reason God didn't give it was to spare you? So I get the call every year. My mom reminds me, it was just this week, March 10th, 17-year anniversary of when my brother died, and she will call almost every year. You remember? I remember, Mom. So 17 years ago, my brother's on a roof, and a piece of flashing hits a telephone pole, gets electrocuted, falls off the roof. 17 years ago. As we put God on trial, I can look at that evidence. Surely, you don't really love me the way you say you do, or this wouldn't have happened. We all have different evidence we look at. But I remember getting comforted by that thought. After he fell off the roof and we're pleading with God for him to live, and God says, no. Maybe it was to spare us, to spare him from greater pain. Maybe his quality of life would have been so messed up that it was God's kindness to say, let me spare you. That thing that you desperately want, we don't know the future. I mean, think of our lack of humility. God, I'm all-knowing. I know the future. I know how this would play out. I know what I deserve. Give me this thing or you don't love me. Maybe we don't know as much as we think we do, and God actually is sparing us. And we got to look at the other evidence. Yeah, God, I don't know whether you really care about me, but it's God, as Paul begins to defend, it's like, yes, we can be mad at our Heavenly Father. But I want to remind you of the evidence of all of the Trinity's work in your life. Did you see some of kind of the beautiful promises that Paul said of the Spirit's work in our life? It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He said, look, I know this is confusing and difficult, but I want to remind you that I have placed my seal on you. He has given us his spirit as a gift, so we know God still loves us. Does he anointed us? Anointing kind of gives the idea of calling and purpose. So yes, that thing that you wanted, you did not get, but God's saying, I have a purpose for you beyond what you know. I have anointed you and called you to something. Now again, maybe God is sanctifying us. So I got to ask that, God, are you disciplining me? But that's not always the case. But maybe he's just steering you to a greater purpose than you realize. And maybe he's just sparing you. But his spirit in us guarantees that he has called us and called us into a purpose. And God isn't wasting that pain. That seal Think of like old medieval movies where they'd have a signet ring and wax, right? And they'd put their stamp on it. I'm a city boy. I'm not a farmer. But you ever see that when they brand cattle, right? What does that signify? That one's mine. God, I mean, I guess the most equivalent, maybe like a signature for us, right? When you get a package, is that your package? Well, I sign it verifying. That's mine. 
God has put a, his signature on your soul. And I know it's hard to believe, but he wrote his signature on your soul proclaiming, that one's mine. He has adopted you and called you his son and his daughter. Don't forget that in the midst of that. He has given you his spirit as a guarantee. I don't think you realized how theologically rich that word guarantee is. When we accept Christ, he puts his spirit within us, reminding us he is always with us and given us purpose. But that word is beautiful. The dictionary, kind of you look into the biblical dictionary of it, a guarantee in each case, a payment is involved by which a person guarantees further payment. That does so much for us. One, it validates your grief, right? God is going to save you. Now, he already has saved you and adopted you. But what that tells us, the fullness of our salvation is yet to come. And so it is okay. There will be difficulty. There will be trials. It doesn't mean you're not his. It just means God has not yet brought the fullness of our salvation when he redeems all things. What it does, it gives us such peace that he will do it. The fullness of payment will come. Difficulty will not last forever. His full salvation, and that's what a down payment is, right? You put money down, and that guarantees further payment, right? We're almost coming up on kind of garage sale time, right? Maybe you see something, and you want it, but you don't have all the money, and you're like, well, here, I'll put something down. Like, take my firstborn. Don't sell that thing, right? What does that down payment do? It guarantees I'm coming back. God gave you the gift of his spirit. And in that moment that happened, he says, look, I'm coming back. I'll give you the full payment later. Do not doubt. It's one of the most beautiful pictures of perseverance of the saints, if you've heard it that way, but that you won't, that you can't lose your salvation because it's not based off of, I put my faith in Christ. Now I'm a good enough Christian. I'll get there. It's based off the promise of God that he has put a down payment on your soul and he will pay the rest, and that we can rest in that. So as we look at the evidence of our disappointments, we need to look at the evidence of God's love for us and his work of the Spirit. We can't stop at just the Spirit. The ultimate evidence, so we know God is for us. Look at this beautiful promise. For all the promises of God, find their yes in him. Jesus is all the evidence I will ever need in this confusing, disappointing world. Wait, I know he loves me. Romans 8.32, if he didn't spare his only son, if he gave the most precious gift and sacrifice for you, why would you ever doubt that he would not also with that give you all things? That he doesn't love you. The cross guarantees This is how God feels towards you. God looks at you in his posture. His answer is yes. I am for them. All throughout the scriptures, it's kind of held out. Blessings and curses. If you obey in your faithful blessings, if you disobey curses, that's what Moses put before the people. And of course, we have all failed and will always fail. And what did Jesus do on the cross? He embraced all our curses, all our punishment, guaranteeing 
If you are in Christ, God's posture to you is not one of punishment. It is one of love and delight. I love this quote one commentator says. In Christ, we not only see all of God's promises coming to fruition, but also God's unqualified yes to humankind. Christ is God's yes to all meaningful human hopes. Christ is God's yes to human longing for life, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification. But we should be mindful that God also speaks no to every selfish and perverted longing of human human, of humanity. God looks at you and his posture is one of love and for you. Not that we deserve it, but because of Christ. God looks at you and it has an unqualified yes. To really believe that, yeah, maybe I'm a child of God, but I sure don't feel like his favorite. God says, none of that. I love you. Yes. Again, not to every pleasure, but to every good promise of God. God looks at you not to give you pain and grief like Paul says, but he loves you for your joy. Do you understand God is for you? It's been really fun. My kids are getting to the age where I can bring back some of the old classics and show them the movies. Just knocked out Free Willy two weeks ago. Excited. I think tonight, actually, we're watching Princess Bride. So we, uh, I just finished reading it with my daughter. I didn't even know there was a book, but there's a book. It's been so fun. Like reading it to her, and I didn't realize I've seen the movie like a thousand times, how many cliffhangers there are. Like they get to the man in black, and my daughter goes, oh, I know that's the six-fingered man. I'm like, she doesn't know that's Wesley. She didn't Wesley dead. I'm like, yeah, it's the man in black. Oh, my gosh. Like I was giddy to get to the point where she pushes him down the hill, and then... If you've seen the movie a thousand times like me, you're the, as you And then she instantly knows it's Wesley. Because what did Wesley say to her every time he talked to her? As you wish. That was his posture towards her. And he even says in the movie, my posture, what he was trying to say is I love you when he said that. Again, God is not your servant. He's not your farm boy. But every time when God operates with you, it's, I love you. You are mine. His posture towards you is yes. Not that we deserve it. Because of Christ. And it's hard to believe that with all the evidence in our life. Because of Jesus, he looks at you and says, yes. You bow your heads and pray with me. Father, it is so hard to believe that. There are so many things beyond our human wisdom. There are so many things we can't wrap our heads around that didn't go the way we want them to go, that is full of disappointment and difficulty and confusion. But God, would we believe your heart to us is one of yes and I love you? Not that we deserve it. God, thank you that you gave us your spirit, calling us your own, sealing us, guaranteeing that you will return 
to us and we would experience the fullness of salvation. But ultimately, thank you for the cross. Guarantees your posture towards us is yes. In Jesus' name, amen.